Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from our panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchdown telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Thank you so much, Norma, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to this really very special program, highlights from the 2021 American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, annual meeting, and the theme of the meeting is equity, every patient, every day, everywhere. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Novartis Oncology, an educational donation provided by Amgen, and an independent educational grant from Merck and Company. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. And we have over 200 participants on the call today, and you come from all the United States, from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Bangladesh, India, Kenya, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a, a global call as well. Um, and I, um, before I introduce our first speaker, um, I am going to ask you just a few questions um, just to get a sense of what you all know um, before the program begins. Um, it's been very helpful to us um, to get this information um, and, and I'm planning future programs as well. Um, and so, um, and I'm going to actually, uh, and for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions. I'm going to start with the first question. On a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand the importance of equity in the delivery of oncology care to every patient, every day, everywhere. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand ASCO updates on the treatment of breast cancer, breast and ovarian cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand ASCO updates on the treatment of prostate cancer. One is the highest rating, five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand ASCO updates on the treatment of brain cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two more questions. I understand ASCO updates on the treatment of oral, head, and neck cancer. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question. I understand ASCO updates on the treatment of sarcoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It really will help us as we move forward with um, planning programs um, into the future. And uh, now I want to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is uh, Dr. Kamal Abu Hussein. Dr. Hussein is lead physician, breast medical oncology, MD Anderson at Cooper 
Cancer Center. And Dr. Uh, Hussein will be addressing how ASCO contributes to equity in the care of diverse populations and updates on the treatment of breast cancer presented at ASCO. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Hussein. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. I hope everybody can hear me well. Yes. In the American Society of Clinical Oncology meeting this year, we've seen a lot of stress on the importance of addressing issues related to health disparities and access to care. There was a lot of focus from the first day on the importance of delivering not only equal care to patients, but also aiming at making it equitable to address patient-specific needs. There were presentations that addressed racism and its harmful effects when it comes to healthcare as it leads to racial exclusion, discrimination, and violence, which puts certain populations at a disadvantage regarding scarcity of medical resources and higher risks of developing disease. There were a lot of abstracts presented, and I, I chose to summarize one of those abstracts that was presented by uh, folks from the University of Pennsylvania just as an example. Um, in this abstract, they focused on the Philadelphia County and noted that there was a higher incidence of cancer overall and higher mortality of um, certain cancers in particular, um, most notably prostate, lung, pancreas, and liver, with notable disparities for black patients. They reviewed their work, which included multiple community-based efforts to promote participation in cancer care through building trust and establishing bidirectional relationships through educational efforts um, about cancer clinical trials in black communities, promoting programs to increase access to cancer screening, outreach efforts to reach individuals in venues including church, neighborhood blocks, community parks, and health centers. They were able to reach more than 10,000 uh, people during the entire period of their work. And they also discussed culturally tailoring the American Cancer Society marketing strategies to make it um, more culturally sensitive and ways to mitigate transportation barriers to patients. They also discussed the importance of thinking about our non-English speaking patients in aspects regarding to clinical trials and making sure that we have consent forms and educational materials available in multiple languages. Now those efforts were implemented in the Philadelphia County between 2014 to 2018 and they showed that there was a 1.9-fold increase in black participants in the adult treatment trials and a four-fold increase in the adult non-therapeutic interventional trials. They stressed on the importance of resolving gaps in access to care and the efforts towards social justice in clinical trials, which must be backed by a larger anti-racist culture. Now, regarding the updates in breast cancer that were presented in the conference, um, I would like to start off by discussing the role of the CDK4-6 inhibitors in the management of metastatic hormone receptor-positive breast cancer. Um, those are oral agents that have established their role in the management of such an important disease through doubling the length of time that passes from starting the drug until the disease shows evidence of progression. And they are typically administered in addition to an endocrine or a hormonal therapy partner. The way they work simply is by inhibition, a complex called the cyclin D kinase complex leading to cell cycle arrest for the breast cancer cells. And we currently have three different oral agents available in the market, 
namely alpha-cyclib, ribocyclib, and abemocyclib. And they were initially studied in combination with a hormonal therapy um, group called aromatase inhibitors. Now, they have been studying those three agents also in combination with another endocrine therapy called fulvestrant. And there were an, uh, an update in this year's meeting regarding two major trials. The first one is the Mona Lisa 3 trial, where they compared the use of fulvestrant alone to fulvestrant and ribocyclib, and they were able to give us an update regarding their five-year survival with an improvement from 31% to 46%, and a median improvement of more than a year in survival, which was a very exciting update. There was noted benefit in subgroups, in all subgroups really, so, for example, uh, patients who had bone-only disease or others who had evidence of involvement of their liver and lungs with their breast cancer, which normally we consider them a poor prognostic factor. And it seems that everyone benefited from the addition of ribocyclin. They also looked at a very exciting endpoint, which is time to first chemotherapy. So, basically, when patients are on some form of hormonal therapy, usually the side effects are pretty manageable that they have a very decent quality of life and most patients can carry on with their daily activities and patients can continue to work normally and have a very happy and healthy social life. And deferring chemotherapy becomes a very important clinical endpoint both to patients and doctors because of this improvement in the overall quality of life. And in this study, they did see an improvement in that endpoint with the addition of ribocyclib where the time to first chemotherapy was delayed from 28.8 months to 48 months. So almost a 20-month improvement in the length of time until chemotherapy is started. The other similar study that gave us an update was the Paloma-3 trial. They had a very similar patient population of metastatic hormone receptor-positive breast cancer, and those patients were treated either, again, with fulvestrant alone or fulvestrant in combination with another CDK4-6 inhibitor, salvocyclin. And they presented an update regarding the overall survival on median follow-up of more than 73 months, and they did see an improvement of more than six months in overall survival in the salvocyclin arm. Again, they were able to show an improvement in all the different subgroups as we discussed in the prior study. And previously, we've seen similar results from the third CDK4-6 inhibitor, abemocyclin. So now we will move on from the metastatic world, and we'll shift gears and start talking about the HER2-positive breast cancer in the early-stage disease. The study that I would like to start with is the ADAPT clinical trial for the HER2-positive hormone receptor-negative early-stage disease setting. First, I would like to give you a little bit of background so in the HER2-positive disease, we only have data that lets us combine anti-HER2 therapy to chemotherapy, and we don't have any data yet to support the use of anti-HER2 therapy alone. In this ADAPT trial, they looked at a total of 134 patients, and they split them into two arms. The first arm received two anti-HER2 therapies, which are commonly used, and those are trastuzumab and pertuzumab and the other arm received the two same drugs in addition to a chemotherapy agent called Taxol. And I would like to note here that most of the patients enrolled on this trial had no cancer that was larger than two centimeters, 
and half of them had lymph node positive um, disease. So the other half did not have lymph node involvement. The endpoint of the trial was something called pathologic complete response, which is the ability to completely clear the cancer cells from the breast and the lymph node. The chemotherapy arm was able to get to that endpoint in more than 90% of the cases. However, without chemotherapy, with the use only of the anti-HER2 therapy, they were able to get to the same endpoint in more than 30% of the patients. And the odds of five-year survival without evidence of developing disease recurrence was 98% in the chemotherapy arm and 87% in the antibody alone arm without chemotherapy. Now, why do we care about the pathologic complete response as an endpoint when we are administering treatment prior to surgery? Usually, patients who achieve that endpoint do overall very well with significantly, significantly less chances of recurrence in the future and overall better survival, making pathologic complete response a very important and clinically meaningful endpoint for our HER2-positive breast cancer patients. Now, moving on to the third subtype of breast cancer, I would like to discuss the updates in the triple negative world. There has been a lot of excitement about the research using immunotherapy in this subset, and we do have approval for the use of immunotherapy in the advanced and metastatic setting of the triple negative disease. And the two approved agents are called pembrolizumab and atezolizumab. Both are combined with chemotherapy. And whenever something works for the metastatic disease in oncology, we try to move it to the early stage disease to see if we can improve the cure rates. Now, one major trial that I would like to start off with is the Keynote 522 trial, which was a global effort that studied almost a total of 1,200 patients with early stage triple negative breast cancer. And they divided them into two groups that proceeded with chemotherapy alone before surgery and the other group proceeded with chemotherapy and immunotherapy called pembrolizumab. And everybody moved on to surgery, and after surgery, again, they tried to assess the same endpoint, which is pathologic complete response, so ability to completely clear the cancer from the breast and the lymph nodes. And previously, they presented data that showed an improvement of about 14% in the ability to achieve that endpoint with the addition of immunotherapy. And we were excited that this might get an FDA approval for the use of pembrolizumab in the early stage disease. Now, there were some additional analyses presented to the FDA, and at the second interim analysis, they did see that the difference of 14% diminished to 9.2%, and they repeated that analysis. There was a third interim analysis where it diminished further to 7.5%. So due to concerns of diminishing pathologic complete response rates, the approval of pembrolizumab by the FDA was deferred at this point in the early curative setting of triple negative breast cancer. This was not the only trial testing immunotherapy in early stage breast cancer in the triple negative group. The Impassion 031 study, which used another form of immunotherapy called atezolizumab, gave us similar results with potential benefits. And there is a third ongoing trial that hasn't finished accruing patients called the SWAS-1418 trial that is using pembrolizumab as a single agent in patients that received chemotherapy before surgery and ended up with more than a centimeter of cancer in the breast or a positive lymph node and 
they split them into two groups where they do nothing and we undergo surveillance for patients with no active treatment, which is the standard of care, or they provide them with pembrolizumab for one year, hoping to decrease the chances of disease recurrence in the future. We're still looking forward to the results of this trial. Now, I think we should definitely discuss the family of PARP inhibitors, which is especially important for patients who have germline BRCA mutations, who have an inherent DNA repair deficiency. So the idea is if you take advantage of these inherent DNA repair deficiencies and further inhibit their DNA through another mechanism, that you could eventually kill this cancer cell through something called synthetic lethality. We know previously from the metastatic setting for BRCA mutated germline breast cancers that there is a benefit from the use of FARP inhibitors. So two major trials from before, the Olympiad trial that gave us the approval of Olaparib and the other trial in BRCA, which gave us the approval for Telazoparib. And both of them led to an improvement in the patient's progression-free survival. So again, as I mentioned before, Whenever we see something working in the metastatic setting, we try to move it to the early stage disease, hoping to improve our cure rate. So there was the Neotala, which was a clinical trial that studied 112 patients with germline BRCA mutated early stage disease who received Talazoparib in the neoadjuvant setting on a daily basis prior to proceeding with surgery. And they continued to follow those patients to see who were the ones that were able to achieve complete clearance of their cancer from the breast and the lymph nodes. And the trial gave us remarkable results with 50% of the patients being able to completely eliminate their cancer with the use of telazoparib alone without the need of chemotherapy, which is very similar to what we would expect with the successful intense chemotherapy regimen like ACT that we commonly use for triple negative patients in the neoadjuvant setting but with significantly less side effects. Now, my presentation is coming to an end. Um, I would like to discuss the last thing, which is the most important clinical trial regarding breast cancer that was presented in the ASCO meeting. Um, this clinical trial is the Olympia trial, which was presented in one of the plenary sessions. And this was a phase three placebo-controlled trial that compared the use of Olaparib after surgery and chemotherapy for patients who harbor the germline BRCA mutation with high-risk disease features in the early-stage breast cancer. They enrolled almost a total of 1,900 patients that got randomized to either receiving Olaparib twice daily for one year versus placebo. And they were looking at the length of time that goes by without evidence of invasive disease detection. And the majority of the patients in the study were triple negative patients and younger ones, so they were premenopausal, and about 70% of the patients had BRCA1 mutation, the other 30% had BRCA2. It was exciting to see that the Olaparib arm, when following patients for three years, did succeed in delaying the recurrence rate, and the benefit went up from 77% to 85.9%. And the chances of distant recurrences went down from 13.1% to 7.1% in favor of the elaborate arm, which is a huge impact for this specific population. 
And there was also an improvement in the overall survival, which even though it was only 3%, which is a modest improvement, but this is a high-risk population, so quite a meaningful result. Again, I would remind you that this is an overall well-tolerated class of traps. And in research right now, there's a lot of excitement and work being done to see if we can get a good response from combining those last two strategies, so using PARP inhibitors and immunotherapy in the world of triple negative breast cancer. And we've seen prior results from clinical trials like the Mediola trial, where they used a PARP inhibitor, Olaparib, and an immunotherapy, Dervalumab, with evidence of improved response in the metastatic triple negative breast cancer with a durable benefit which is why we are always excited about the use of immunotherapy in treating cancer, because the thought is that we could get to a result that is not necessarily temporarily or short-lived, and if we could train your immune system to recognize the specific features of breast cancer, that you could potentially achieve long-lasting control of disease and even cure. With that, I'll end my talk, and I hope I managed to give you an idea regarding some of the new and exciting data presented in this recent ASCO conference regarding the updates in breast cancer. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Hussein. That was superb and actually just a wonderful review and a lot of promise and hope and, uh, for people about some of these many new treatments that they want to ask their oncologists about if they haven't already. So um, thank you so much. Uh, very, very helpful. Thank you. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Carolyn Runowitz. Dr. Runowitz is Professor, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Executive Associate Dean for Academic Affairs, Herbert Wertheim, College of Medicine, Florida International University. And Dr. Runowitz will be addressing updates on the treatment of ovarian cancer presented at ASCO. And it's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Runowitz. Thank you, and thank you for including me in this conference call. I am honored to be among this prominent group of oncologists. Um, I have included highlights not only from ASCO, but also from the SGO, Society of Gynecologic Oncology, and ESMO, which is the European Society of Medical Oncology. And I've broken the talk into uh, different areas, whether the chemotherapy is given first, um, whether there's surgery, whether there's maintenance. Um, and so uh, I will go over it in those categories. So the first is neoadjuvant. Neoadjuvant is chemotherapy that is given prior to surgery or radiation. In this case, um, it's usually surgery. And one study was reported that added uh, Pembro, Pembro, which is an immunotherapy, to neoadjuvant carboplatin and paclitaxel. And the preliminary data suggests an advantage to the addition of immunotherapy in the upfront neoadjuvant setting. However, we need to await mature data. The reason that this is exciting and important is that immunotherapy is not to date been that effective in ovarian cancer. And as you heard from the past um, speaker on breast cancer, if you move the treatments up in the line of treatments, they may be more efficacious. And so that may be why we're seeing some benefit to immunotherapy where we haven't seen it when used later in the disease. Secondary cytoreductive surgery or debulking surgery 
is something that is currently um, not agreed upon in general. However, in the European study, the AGO desktop and got ovarian um, cancer trial, the median overall survival was prolonged with secondary cytoreductive surgery. This contrasts with the GOG study. So I think the benefit of surgery is still debated. However, the benefit in both groups, the U.S. study and the um, European study, um, is largely derived in those undergoing a complete resection, um, patients who are highly preselected, meaning that you think you're going to be able to remove all tumor, and that surgery happens at experienced surgical centers. And I would like to reemphasize that point, that a gynecologic oncologist is trained to do these uh, debulking or cytoreductive surgeries. Uh, it isn't that the gynecologist and the general surgeon can't do it, but the gynecologic oncologist is specifically trained to do this and will spend the hours needed to do this. Um, again, another important point there was the experienced surgical centers. So you want to be treated at a high-volume center with a G1 oncologist. The next area I'd like to discuss is maintenance therapy following first-line therapy. And maintenance or consolidation therapy is given to consolidate the response that you see after initial chemotherapy. So Fisterer and colleagues um, reported on a study evaluating the optimal duration of bevacizumab, which is an anti-angiogenic agent, after primary treatment with paclitaxel and carboplatin. Longer treatment was feasible but did not impact outcomes. So the recommendation continues to be 15 months of bevacizumab after first-line therapy. MRSA and colleagues at ESMO presented data on a PARP inhibitor, norapamid, as maintenance therapy. That was the phase three NGOT ovarian 16 NOVA trial and they reported an increase in progression-free survival. And the interesting thing here is the benefit was seen in all patients, but greater in the BRCA mutation group. Um, so that was an important observation. In recurrent ovarian cancer, I've divided it up into platinum-resistant and platinum-sensitive. Um, the MD Anderson group, Dr. Weston and her colleagues, reported on the use of a WE inhibitor alone and in combination with a PARP inhibitor, olaparib, in patients with recurrent ovarian cancer with progression on a PARP inhibitor, and the results were um, interesting and exciting. The WE inhibitor with or without the PARP inhibitor demonstrated efficacy. So the WE inhibitors are really new therapies that we haven't seen um, that much data, and the toxicities were manageable. So this was, in my opinion, very exciting. Another study showed weekly exabepilone and biweekly bevacizumab in platinum-resistant refractory was also an active regimen, and that came out of investigators from the University of Maryland. Um, an inhibitor of ataxia, telangiectasia, and RAD3-related protein kinase for with gentamicin, I'm sorry, with gemcitabine, 
extended progression-free survival in patients with platinum-resistant high-grade ovarian cancer. So this, again, was a new drug, so exciting that there are new drugs, and that was out of the Dana-Farber Cancer Center. A phase two of XMT1536, um, which will probably be released as a doliflexin uh, antibody drug conjugate, is a directed antibody drug conjugate in platinum-resistant ovarian cancer. And investigators at the University of Oklahoma uh, performed a phase one data, which did show preliminary, uh, preliminary data did show activity. And that's exciting because in phase one, you're looking more for the dose and toxicity and not so much activity. And there was activity. So that looks like it's going to be an exciting class of drugs. Mervituximab, who many of you have seen at prior meetings, is a folate receptor targeting antibody drug conjugate. It was given in combination with bevacizumab. And the design here is almost a Trojan horse. The folate receptor allows the antibody drug conjugate to get into the ovarian cancer and release um, the drug. So that's the Trojan horse analogy. This group included platinum resistant and platinum sensitive, and this was the final analysis which was presented. There was a durable response rate in patients who have a folate receptor, regardless of platinum sensitivity. So that looks like a very active drug, and it's far advanced in its studies, so it should become more widely available. A phase one, another phase one um, folate receptor um, antibody drug conjugate in platinum-resistant refractory patients called STRO002 induces immunogenic cell death and contains a tubulin targeting compound. This uh, study demonstrated safety and efficacy Again, something one doesn't expect from a phase one. So it looks like the folate receptor ADCs or um, antibody drug conjugates are active, and we will see more of them. And then lastly, in the platinum-resistant, um, anlotinib is a TKI um, inhibitor, and in combination with premetrexid in platinum-resistant ovarian cancer showed activity in anti-angiogenic naive patients, and this was a study out of China. Um, and the last category is recurrent ovarian cancer platinum sensitive. And as you heard in the breast um, presentations, the PARP inhibitors um, have emerged as important agents in the treatment of ovarian cancer, including maintenance therapy and platinum sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer um, and the um, newest one is Fusolaparpid, um, and that is active, again, out of China. Recarborib is another PARP inhibitor in BRCA-mutated advanced relapsed ovarian cancer, and that showed prolonged progression-free survival as compared with standard therapy. And that study is called the Aerial 4 and was presented at ESMO. The solo NGOT demonstrated maintenance therapy with Olaparid showed prolonged median overall survival in BRCA mutation and platinum-sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer. 
And then lastly, the anti-phase 2 trial evaluated a PARP inhibitor, niraparib, and an anti-angiogenesis agent. Um, and that preliminary data, which um, was an early phase 2, is encouraging, again, out of China. So to put it all together, the meeting showed lots of activity for uh, many of the phase 1s. Uh, a potential way to use immunotherapy in ovarian cancer, and the emerging role of PARP inhibitors. So my take-home from this is it's very important for patients to get germline tested uh, for mutations and also have their tumor tested to see if there is a driver mutation. And these are all available, um, but my recommendation is always to go to a center uh, where there's expertise in ovarian cancer. So in summary, I strongly encourage all patients, and specifically those with ovarian cancer, to avail themselves of the clinical trials before they receive too many standard therapies. In my opinion, the advances and excitement that these meetings were in drugs and development, as noted in my remarks. Um, there are regional, national, and international clinical trials. Despite the restrictions imposed by COVID, patients enrolled in these clinical trials and move the science and treatment forward. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Ronowitz, and thank you also for highlighting, of course, the importance and significance of clinical trials um, for all patients, and um, so thank you for that, that highlight, and it's just so important, and I know we'll be hearing more about that from each of our speakers. Thank you. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Jeffrey Bruce. Dr. Bruce is the Edgar M. Huspian Professor of Neurological Surgery, Vice Chairman of Academic Affairs, New York Presbyterian Columbia University Medical Center, Director Bartoli Brain Tumor Research Laboratory, Co-Director Brain Tumor Center. And Dr. Bruce will be presenting updates on the treatment of brain cancer presented at ASCO. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Bruce. Thank you so much, Carolyn. It's great to be uh, part of this uh, terrific organization and to fill everybody in on the uh, recent ASCO meeting. Um, this meeting highlighted a number of exciting, innovative clinical trials for patients with brain tumors. This is a, a very productive and exciting time for brain tumor research. You know, as you probably know, the standard treatment for patients with gliomas is to first surgically remove them as completely as possible followed by a six-week course of radiation and then chemotherapy with a drug called Temidar. And even though most patients initially respond well to standard treatment, these tumors generally grow back at some point. Because of this tendency to grow back, newer and more effective experimental treatments are needed, and that's why the ASCO meetings are so important. They provide an outlet for investigators to discuss the novel treatments that are being developed in the lab and how these therapies translate to the treatment of patients with with this disease. Um, probably the most exciting area in brain tumor research right now involves immunotherapy. And immunotherapies are treatments that use the patient's own immune system to help fight the tumor. To understand how immunotherapy works, think of when you get an infection, such as a virus or a bacteria, your body mounts a vigorous immune response to get rid of the infection. Uh, a similar thing happens when patients have tumors. Their immune response gets rid of the tumor cells, which are seen as foreign invaders like the bacteria or viruses. However, the problem is that the immune system is generally not strong enough 
to overcome the rapidly growing tumor. And often the tumor itself suppresses or hides from the body's immune response. Therefore, a growing area of research involves ways to boost the immune system towards tumors, which we call anti-tumor immunity. And one of the more historically promising immunotherapies involves a group of drugs that are called checkpoint inhibitors. And checkpoint inhibitors work by releasing a mechanism that holds back the body's immune response. By doing so, these drugs help the immune system attack tumor cells. However, several prior studies have shown that checkpoint inhibitors are likely not effective if they're just used alone in glioma due to the fact that gliomas are actually suppressing or blocking the immune response. Therefore, the recent emphasis in this year's ASCO meeting has been placed on first stimulating the immune response to glioma cells by recognizing these tumors as, as foreign, such as working like a vaccine. And then the checkpoint inhibitors are more likely to work. One novel and exciting way to get the immune system to recognize glioma cells is through a cancer vaccine. Similar to vaccines that protect us against common infections, cancer vaccines work by assisting our immune system to recognize proteins that are unique to tumor cells, and therefore they help orchestrate a highly specific anti-tumor immune response. The first uh, such clinical trial I'd like to mention is a study from Japan, which administered a cancer vaccine, vaccine directly to glioma-associated proteins. And this vaccine was called TASO313. And they gave it to 10 patients with recurrent glioblastoma. And the trial demonstrated safety, uh, as well as some very promising preliminary results in five of the 10 patients. Furthermore, the study demonstrated an increase of cytotoxic T cells and antibodies suggesting an effective immune response. A larger trial using this vaccine is currently being planned. In a similar study from Massachusetts General Hospital and Columbia, 20 patients with recurrent glioblastoma were given a vaccine made from a cytomegalovirus. What the cytomegalovirus is, is is a infection that most people or a virus that most people have had an exposure to through a prior illness. So, in this trial, in addition to the vaccine, patients are given one or one of two immune drugs to stimulate the immune system. So, these combination therapies were well tolerated, and nearly half of the patients showed a tumor response. And a, a larger randomized clinical trial is supposed to begin later this year. So uh, similar to cancer vaccine therapies, several groups are currently investigating what are known as oncolytic viruses. These are viruses that are engineered to only infect tumor cells and induce a strong anti-tumor immune response. A um, multi-institutional phase two study being led by Dana-Farber in Boston uh, looked at the safety and efficacy of new intratumoral immunotherapy with a, um, uh, a virus, a poliovirus, that selectively targets glioma cells by provoking an immune response. 
The trial is going to enroll 30 patients. All of them will receive uh, the virus locally in, in the tumor through convection-enhanced delivery. Two to four weeks later, um, the patients will be put on a checkpoint inhibitor, which will help to make the vaccine more effective. And uh, we're uh, eagerly awaiting the long-term results of this, this very novel study. Um, as mentioned previously, the standard treatment for glioblastoma is radiation and temozolomide. Previous studies have demonstrated that while these therapies effectively kill tumor cells, the downside is that they can also affect the immune cells that are important for an effective immune response. Therefore, when these immune cells are gone, the immunotherapy is not as effective. And two studies from this year's meeting will have addressed this problem. One is from the University of Alabama, where they put together a phase one study, and they isolated the patient's T cells and then modified them to make them resistant to the temozolomide chemotherapy. They then infused these T cells back into the patient. So this is a preliminary study, uh, but what they showed is that this is a feasible and safe option for patients, but it's only a preliminary study, so we, we really look forward to the future results to see whether it's, it's truly going to be effective or not. Um, switching gears now, uh, I'd like to discuss some interesting findings on the chemotherapy front, uh, specifically related to novel targeted agents that are designed to exploit the key vulnerabilities in glioma cells. There were two interesting studies using new anti-tumor tumors, uh, tumor uh, drugs. One study from Barrow enrolled patients with recurrent glioma and targeted signaling pathways which are known to be uh, dysregulated in glioma. And though these results are preliminary, the investigators found that this combination therapy led to anti-tumor responses. And so they've expanded their trial to enroll more patients. The other interesting targeted therapy in recurrent glioblastoma patients was an early phase study out of Australia. Uh, they had a drug called ACT001, which is a potent uh, small molecule inhibitor of, of STAT3 which is a crucial signaling molecule in, that's involved in glioma uh, formation and it's associated with a, a poor prognosis. And in this small group, there were patients that had good responses as well as uh, stable uh, disease uh, from this targeted approach. And so they're putting together a phase two trial combining this therapy with the uh, PD-1 checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, that's that's Plan, plan to be uh, coming up in the future. Um, I'd also like to quickly mention two very promising studies in the realm of radiotherapy to treat patients with glioma. So while standard radiotherapy remains a key component in the management of glioma, it's limited by potential damage to the surrounding normal brain, and some new um, some new studies are attempting to circumvent this issue by looking at new ways to deliver radiation. A multi-center phase one trial led by um, colleagues at University of Texas San Antonio were able to deliver a radiation-tagged nanoparticle called 186 RNL 
directly into the tumor we have much greater than that of conventional radiotherapy while sparing the normal brain. And in a second multicenter phase four study for patients with recurrent glioma, the surgeons implanted a permanent um, bioresorbable device that emits radiation at a, a cesium-131, a special type of radiation. And this study is planning to enroll up to 600 patients across 50 states and will allow for evaluating this treatment approach in a real-world setting. And investigators will be able to understand the long-term outcomes of this <laughs> implantable uh, radiotherapy device. So lastly, I want to finish up by telling you about some very interesting studies that have uh, utilized computational personalized medicine approaches to to select specific you know, therapies for glioma patients based on the genetic makeup of their tumors. One of the most promising studies came out of UCSF where they performed genomic sequencing on both the patient's blood and their tumors. And based on these results, they selected up to four targeting drugs just to use for uh, each patient. And these studies are fascinating and encouraging as, as we understand that every patient's tumor is slightly different and that each patient with glioblastoma really deserves a personalized therapeutic approach to their cancer care. Uh, finally, I want to end by recommending that all patients and their families consider looking for a brain tumor specialist when trying to find the best treatments. These specialists are often associated with an academic medical center where brain tumor patients or brain tumor teams work together to try aggressive treatments and new treatments that may be helpful. Also, groups like cancer care are important because they provide the support and information for patients who are looking for answers when faced with these challenging tumors. You should know that there are there are some outstanding laboratories and researchers who are working with glioblastomas and are making headway with some sophisticated and clever ideas. There's, there's more optimism now for finding better treatments and improving the quality of life than there ever has been before. So thank you for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Bruce. That was really outstanding, and I really um, you brought up a lot of very important and new areas that are really very interesting for the um, participants to hear. So um, thank you so much. Um, and also thank you for um, highlighting the importance of uh, clinical trial participation and also for people going to uh, major academic centers that that have expertise in treating uh, brain brain cancers. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Susan Sloven. Dr. Sloven is attending physician, genitourinary oncology service, Sydney Kimmel Center for Prostate and Urologic Diseases, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Department of Medicine, Wall Cornell, Wall College of Cornell, Medicine, uh, Cornell University. And Dr. Sullivan will be addressing updates on the treatment of prostate cancer presented at ASCO. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Sullivan. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and welcome, everyone. I'm very pleased to be able to share with you some very exciting updates uh, from ASCO in the world of prostate cancer. As many of you know, I try to do this at least once or twice a year. But uh, as usual, we have themes, and the theme this year has been centered on biomarkers, and biomarkers are 
a wide range of different measures that can capture what's happening in a cell or a person for that matter. And many of you know prostate-specific antigen or PSA is the usual biomarker that we follow uh, for the treatment of prostate cancer. Or if you don't have cancer, it's uh, a protein that is secreted into the blood by the normal prostate that allows you just to, to keep track of the health of the prostate gland itself. Well, when you marry a biomarker with uh, perhaps uh, imaging studies or new treatments, uh, you might find that you come out with something that's very, very different. Another biomarker that we've known about for a very long time is called prostate-specific membrane antigen, or PSMA. And it's rather unusual because the name would imply that it's really very specific, but it's not as specific as we would like because it is expressed in blood vessels, for example, in other cancers such as kidney cancers. It is expressed in the uh, hepatobiliary system, that's the liver and the gallbladder, and also in certain cells within the brain. And as such, uh, it was really very fortuitous that it was discovered here that as prostate cancer cells become more and more resistant to therapy, this molecule also starts to increase in its expression. So it's essentially a transmembrane protein, which means it's expressed on the inside and the outside of the cell. And it can be used as a biomarker to really determine where those cancer cells might be. So when you marry an imaging modality, in other words, an imaging treatment like bone scan, CAT scan, PET scan, along with a drug that could target PSMA, you get what we call a theranostic. So we're, we're imaging for diagnostic, per, uh, for diagnostic reasons. We're coupling it with a treatment that is therapeutic, hence the term theranostic. So what's exciting about this? Well, we have all been, I think, aware of the fact that there is a novel imaging uh, modality known as a PSMA PET scan that recently gained approval at University of California, San Francisco and University of California, Los Angeles. And it was used essentially to determine if patients who have had surgery uh, were really free of their disease when their PSA returned, what we call a biochemical relapse. And the importance of it is that sometimes bone and CAT scans don't really tell you what's going on. And so it's been determined that in select cases, and I underscore the word select, that using this kind of post prostatectomy imaging could be very helpful and uh, may save patients from going on to salvage radiation, particularly if they find disease that's already spread and beyond where the prostate had been, but also that was not detected on bone or CAT scan. More recently, we have the PYL scan, uh, PSMA scan, that was approved uh, as a result of the work done at Memorial Sloan Kettering. However, even though it's approved, it's still not available due to really uh, the, the issues in terms of how does insurance bill for it. So if I could extrapolate the renostics and all these imaging studies, this led to a very important phase three trial known as the VISION trial. Uh, when we talk about it being open-labeled, it means patients know exactly what they were treated with. Now, a lot of our patients have been asking about this, but it's really for a very select group of patients. So when the trial was designed, 
the idea was, was there an improvement in terms of certain parameters such as survival or progression-free survival that would be in keeping with other prior therapies? And remember, just about every FDA-approved treatment that we've had for prostate cancer has been associated not only with therapeutic benefit, but other benefits, including survival. This open-label phase three vision trial accrued patients who had progressive PSMA-positive metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. Now, the way we knew that they had PSMA expressed uh, in their body was based on a companion uh, investigational PSMA PET imaging protocol. So we would uh, only the patients who express PSMA in their bones, for example, or other tissues were allowed to go on. These patients must have also had either one of the new uh, androgen receptor signaling inhibitors such as enzalutamide or abiraterone, and they must have been treated with either one or two prior taxane regimens such as docetaxel or paclitaxel or cabazitaxel. And then the computer flipped the coin and said you will either go on the treatment arm, and this was a radio ligand therapy which made use of uh, a radioactive beta emitter, which is a high-energy emitter known as lutetium-177. It was then coupled with a what we call a small molecule of what we call PSMA-617. Now, what that PSMA-617 does was it binds to PSMA on the cell surface with very high affinity. When it does so, it's taken into the cell itself where that little combination breaks apart and what ends up happening is the radioactivity is subsequently released and causes DNA damage, hence destroying the cell. So this was a trial that incorporated not only this radioligand therapy, lutetium PSMA, but it was given with the best standard of care. Uh, best standard of care could have been anything the patient had in the past or something they hadn't had before, and it was compared with patients who were given either standard of care alone, and it could have been any kind of hormone they had not seen before or any other therapy. So the the upshot is that this is really the first time that we were able to determine really a benefit in using this type of theranostic approach. And not only did it uh, was it comparable to some of the uh, benefits seen with other uh, chemotherapies that have been approved uh, in prostate cancer, but it showed benefit in survival and what we call radiographic progression-free survival, hence meaning that it benefits people. Now, does it benefit every patient? No. And we really, even though this is now being fast-tracked for approval by the FDA, uh, it is unlikely that it will be a requirement for patients to undergo PSMA imaging before getting this drug when it becomes available. I say that because not every institution has the ability to image PSMA. So this is something that one has to be kept in mind. There is a uh, an extended access program 
which uh, is through the sponsor, who I believe is Novartis, and again, it will be for select patients. I believe that the, they will work with the institution to somehow uh, enable a patient to get the drug. But again, it's only if the facility happens to have a very strong nuclear medicine department and the like. So I would uh, encourage people to talk with their doctors. The trial at Memorial that led to this, uh, this to most of this information uh, is closed because that's how we got the information. But again, we're waiting to determine if this is going to really become um, fully functional as an approved drug. In keeping with uh, uh, biomarkers and trying to understand how we can best improve uh, treatment, uh, we have been looking at a we meaning that in the field we're looking at ways to determine can we improve upon our current standards of care and this was really based on a phase 3 trial of using abiraterone and prednisone along with local radiotherapy in men who had uh, really brand new metastatic castration-sensitive prostate cancer. The trial was called the PEACE, T-E-A-C-E, one trial, and it enrolled over a 1,000 patients who uh, presented for the first time with metastatic castration-sensitive prostate cancer, meaning it was metastatic prostate cancer that had not as yet been receiving standard of care hormonal therapy. So this was randomized or broken into two groups, one of which con uh, consisted of just androgen deprivation therapy plus chemotherapy with docetaxel uh, and with uh, androgen deprivation therapy. And uh, the idea was that uh, the preponderance of patients had very high volume disease is defined as probably greater than four metastatic lesions. And about, uh, oh, just a little less than half had lower volume disease. And so patients either got the standard of care, they got a standard of care of, of excuse me, abiraterone and prednisone. They got the standard of care, which is, of course, androgen deprivation therapy with radiation to the primary tumor or standard of care with abiraterone and prednisone and radiation. And patients were followed for about 3.5 years. This was well tolerated. Uh, but the most remarkable thing is that they felt that the addition of abiraterone to not only androgen deprivation therapy, such as Luprolib or Rosarilin, but the addition to pre-existing docetaxel really seemed to improve uh, the results in this patient population. Uh, there did not appear to be any meaningful toxicity, and this may be or may represent a new combination approach to treating patients who present in this manner, and so more data to come. Well, what about patients who are receiving hormonal therapy? What, what, what's any updates about that? Well, you know, a, a short while ago, uh, we were all given an alert that patients who were on uh, abiraterone along with a bone-seeking pharmaceutical, radium-223, which is what we call an alpha emitter. It was the first radio pharmaceutical to really be approved for symptomatic bone metastases and also provide a, uh, a benefit in survival. Well, 
uh, what was noted in uh, in one of the studies uh, using abiraterone and the radium-223 was that there seemed to be an increased risk of fracture, and of course, the trial was immediately put on hold. So this led to further evaluation in what they call the PEACE, P-E-A-C-E, three trial, where they looked at radium-223, not with abiraterone, but with enzalutamide versus enzalutamide alone. Now, the study had been really ongoing for a while, but this was really an updated safety analysis. And what was very interesting here is that in the retrospectoscope, when they went back and looked at why there seemed to be increased falls, increased fracture, it had absolutely nothing to do with the combination of drugs, either with abiraterone and radium or or um, enzalutamide and radium, it had to do with the fact that people had pre-existing osteoporosis and that it, that had not been detected before, nor had it been treated with bisphosphonates, such as zolindronic acid or uh, Exgiva, otherwise known as denosumab. So they went back and over, over 250 patients were treated. Uh, they found that... Um, there were patients, a minority of patients who were treated before going on the trial with these bisphosphonates had a fracture. But the most important thing was that adding a bone protective agent actually reduced skeletal-related events that allowed for the continuation of these drugs in combination with radium-223. So it really validated what we were concerned about. Uh, I'm going to just try to get a little bit more in and just tell you that genomic profiling still remains a major, major effort in our field. I say that because we always are trying to identify those patients who may have uh, genomic alterations that uh, may allow them to become very responsive to PARP inhibitors, a class of drugs, as you've heard before, that really deal with DNA alterations. And it, it, these profilings are also very helpful in identifying those patients who may have the breast cancer gene, the BRCA gene, that is highly associated with prostate cancer and can be uh, passed on to their children so in an inherited way. So there was a, an abstract that had been presented on the ancestral characterization of the genomic landscape. It actually looked at... Uh, disparities uh, in advanced prostate cancer, and in particular African-American men, because this represents a very important unmet need. So the study looked at a very large cohort, particularly of uh, men of African ancestry in a genomic study. Uh, they, they looked at the genomic landscape, and they actually saw similar rates of actionable gene alterations despite whatever the ancestry were. But more notably is that men of African ancestry were less likely to receive as a standard comprehensive genomic profiling earlier in their treatment, and they were less likely to be treated on clinical trials. And of course, this can all impact the genomic landscape, the outcomes, and ultimately how we treat disparities. And so this is an exceptionally important observation and is actually going to be very helpful in guiding treatment. Lastly, in the earlier part of the disease, you know, we're always worrying about do we have, uh, have we detected all the cancer and the light? So there, the CADMUS, C-A-D-M-U-S trial, 
actually was a blinded study, which means nobody knew what the other one was getting, that looked at what we call a multi-parametric ultrasound-targeted modality to biopsy versus a multi-parametric MRI-targeted biopsy. So you may know that the MRI, that it's multi-parametric, is being explored to do away with other imaging modalities in, in such a way that it can hone in on the areas that are highly, highly suspect for prostate cancer, thereby reducing the number of biopsies that are ultimately taken. Well, the end shot, the, uh, the upshot essentially is there was about a 75% agreement in lesion detection between the ultrasound approach and the MRI approach, with about 91% agreement on the detection of clinically significant prostate cancer. Now, why is this uh, important? Because irrespective of what you use, you actually will find the cancer, and uh, you may not have to really put somebody into an MRI machine to really uh, try to detect these areas. And it may also be low cost and, and not have to uh, deal with the insurance issues that often follow trying to get an MRI. I wish I could spend more time giving you more updates, but the takeaways that we have right now is that there's a lot more coming down the pike, both in terms of immunotherapy with bite by specific antibodies and CAR T cells. So hopefully by next year, we'll have a lot more in, uh, in terms of exciting information to share with you. And with that, I thank you for the opportunity to share all this information. And back to you, Dr. Mesner. Oh, thank you so much, um, Dr. Slovin. That was really outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation and uh, just superb. And I, I want to thank you so much and really for bringing up so many different issues here that I think are so relevant to our participants. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Christoph Misikowicz. And Dr. Misikowicz is Assistant Professor of Medicine, Hematology and Medical Oncology, ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Clinical Director of Research in Head and Neck, Clinical Director of the Center for Personalized Cancer Therapeutics, or CP, CPCT, um, the Tisch Cancer Institute, and Chairman of the Oncology, Pharmacy, and Therapeutics Committee. Um, and Dr. Masikowicz, um, who has been a long-standing presenter on these programs, will be addressing updates on the treatment of oral, head, and neck cancer presented at ASCO. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Masikowicz. Uh, so, uh, good afternoon, good morning, depending where you are, uh, for everybody. Uh, something I want to say before I'm going to address the head and neck is that uh, you heard all those stories and uh, you sensed the excitement from all of us speakers about all those trials and promising results that were kind of presented and delivered at ASCO. And I want to say there are some real stories behind it. There are real patients, real doctors, and we cannot do it without your participation. So uh, on one end, it benefited those patients because obviously they got the direct benefit from those very cutting edge and promising uh, treatment interventions. But at the same time, we can present those results to you and you can benefit from them. So I would just advocate, please, please consider clinical trials participation whenever you're going to be talking to, to your physicians. Before I'm going to get it head and neck, and it was already kind of discussed, many times you hear the word immunotherapy and the potential challenges that we have and we, as we give this treatment. Uh, and uh, the way I like to kind of discuss the immunotherapy, I like to use some metaphoric examples to explain 
what is the intention of Indiana therapy and eventually the challenges that we have. And some of those things that were already kind of brought up to your attention may be explained. So, uh, yes, immunotherapy is sort of like a treatment that we want to kind of use the patient's immune system to kind of uh, battle the cancer because cancer is kind of a very, very sneaky uh, and tricky disease because it makes the cancer makes themselves invisible. So actually your own body doesn't know that you have a cancer and as a consequently your own body does nothing which is different from the infection. So one method is we use those checkpoint inhibitors and the, the way I like to explain to the patient, if you're going to imagine that right now you have 100 soldiers in your body that are trying to find the cancer and they have a hard time to find it, by giving you those checkpoint inhibitors, you kind of deliver more soldiers and if you're going to, if you're going to imagine that by giving the checkpoint inhibitors you're going to have millions of soldiers trying to find the cancer, maybe one of them will find it and call the rest of the soldiers to come here and attack the cancer. So one method is that we can, by enhancing the, um, the response, by adding the second immunotherapy agent, kind of create it more and more and make this kind of a surge stronger. So this is one methodology. The second one is that sometimes the cancer is invisible, and it was mentioned before, we use therapeutic vaccines, that we're trying to make the cancer visible so the immune system can see it and then eventually react. And there is something that we often use is we combine immunotherapy and chemotherapy. And chemotherapy, the purpose of the chemotherapy given with immunotherapy is sort of like you're setting up the fire in the town. And what happens if you're going to set up the fire, you're going to have the, the fire trucks and the, the, the police coming because you're going to get their attention and they're going to obviously do something. When we give chemotherapy, we're trying to set up the fire in the cancer, kind of kill the cancer so when the immune system can see it, it eventually can help us to attack the cancer. And the last one, uh, sometimes the, the cancer is kind of shielded. The cancer cannot be reached by the immunotherapy. And the way I try to explain it, if you're going to imagine, you know, two fighters in the boxing ring, if, you know, I'm going to be standing too far from my opponent and my hands cannot reach and I'm trying to punch, it's sort of like throwing, you know, those punches up in the air. And we call it the microenvironment. By changing this microenvironment, the, the immune system and the metaphoric boxing fighter can get closer to the opponent and eventually maybe those punches are going to reach the cancer and finally we're going to be able to beat it up. So those are kind of the strategies and you're going to see them and then I'm going to kind of walk you through and I'm going to give you examples. Obviously something that's happening in head and neck area. So in head and neck right now we use immunotherapy alone or sometimes in combination of chemotherapy and we use it in the recurrent metastatic settings. We use it for any kind of scenario with one exception. It's called nasopharyngeal cancer because when we think about head and neck, we cannot think about any cancer that happens below your brain all the way to your collarbone. So anything between is considered head and neck. As the immunotherapy was approved, as I mentioned, it's just one exception, which is a nasopharyngeal cancer. And it can be because the biology of this cancer is different. It's caused by the Epstein-Barr virus. And actually, predominantly, most of the time it happens in China or uh, northern uh, Africa or southern Europe. So there are some kind of a pockets in the world that this cancer is more common. So we have a new standard of care for those populations, but only in China there were two studies, and what they did, historically we used chemotherapy for recurrent and metastatic nasopharyngeal cancer, immunotherapy was, and it's still in, it's not approved to be used in those settings. So we used chemotherapy only. So in this study, and actually there were two studies, what they did, they said, we're gonna use chemotherapy for one group of patients as a standard 
standard of care. And for the second population of patients, we're going to add immunotherapy, the checkpoint inhibitors, and just to see if there is any difference. And there are two different studies and showed by adding the immunotherapy to chemotherapy. So as I said, the chemotherapy may be setting up this fire and the immunotherapy kind of comes on board and makes the treatment more effective. And what we see in the population of patients treated with the combination that obviously we have a very, very promising results. And those checkpoint inhibitors show that obviously there's improvement for those patients. The message for the US-based patients, uh, one of the caveats is that all those medications that were used in those Chinese studies, none of those drugs, even though we call them all of them checkpoint inhibitors, because there are many companies manufacturing those drugs with a different name. And uh, it's sort of like with the COVID vaccine. There are many vaccines doing the same thing, but some of them are coming from the different countries. And some of those vaccines are not approved in different countries. So the message is, unfortunately, the drugs that they used in those Chinese studies are only approved in China. But this is kind of the message for the US-based population or European or whatever you are, that if this combination of chemotherapy plus immunotherapy worked in the Chinese patients, so I would encourage you to find a clinical trial that kind of mimics the same thing. And there are many trials they try to use or incorporate immunotherapy for patients with nasopharyngeal cancer. And this is sort of like a making a stronger argument because if it did help in two independent studies in the Chinese populations, it's pretty likely that it's going to be uh, effective in any other, obviously, population that is located outside of China. So again, we have a a different a standard of care in China that I'm hoping that we're going to see those results, obviously, uh, and U.S. and European populations so we can use this paradigm. The second study or the second abstract that I want to discuss is an abstract for patients with recurrent and metastatic salivary gland cancers. And those are hard to treat. And with immunotherapy, what we did try to do, we use one agent. So as I kind of alluded at the beginning, that sometimes to make the immunotherapy stronger, we kind of recruit more soldiers. We kind of make this, the immune system stronger by combining two medications. And what they did, they used, it was a phase two study, they used a combination of nivolumab, which is a PD-1 inhibitor, so checkpoint inhibitors, that was many times mentioned during this presentation. It was combined with ipilimumab. But actually, it is also approved in the U.S. market for different cancers. And this combination was tested in other cancers, like melanoma. So the researchers, they said, okay, maybe we can use the same combination in salivary gland tumors. It was a small study, just 32 patients, but it looks very promising and the study matched uh, the statistic endpoint. So it's quite possible that this combination will be investigated in other trials. And since it looks promising, if you have this kind of cancer, I would strongly encourage you to look for such a trial. Another study that I want to discuss is for thyroid patients, because as I mentioned, in head and neck, anything between uh, the base of the brain or below the brain and the, uh, above the collarbone, and we have a thyroid, it also includes the head and neck cancer. And right now, when somebody has a cancer that didn't respond to the iodine, and the cancer that was subsequently treated with one of the oral drug, and we have two of them approved uh, in thyroid cancer called Envatinib and Sorafenib. If those patients, they fail the treatment, unfortunately the treatment is not working anymore, we didn't have any standard of care. 
So there is a new drug called cabozetinib. It was a large phase three study that they randomized the patients that progressed after those two approved drugs, lenvatinib and sorafenib. They randomized them to placebo or cabozetinib. So it's another pill that can be used. And the results are quite promising. And actually, the FDA gave the accelerated approval. So it's very likely that this drug is going to be approved as a standard of care for patients that progress on lenvatinib or sorafenib. So we're going to have another line of the treatment, and it's very exciting because obviously we can uh, just give those drugs to our patients. Another study that I want to discuss, it's, uh, it's a study, again, about with immunotherapy, that we, we already have the immunotherapy that we use in the recurrent metastatic settings. But because the results are looking so promising, we're asking the question, can we use immunotherapy in kind of patients that the cancer is smaller, it's, it's not metastatic, because the results are so promising. There was a study for HPV-positive patients. It was a study called Optima 2 trial, when they gave nivolumab, which is a checkpoint inhibitor, in combination of chemotherapy, napaclitaxel and carboplatin. So the combination of chemotherapy and immunotherapy given to the patient that they have the local or local regional cancer, it's HPV positive, just to see if this combination looks promising. And yes, as of now, uh, based on the presentation that was done uh, by Dr. Rosenberg and others, that this combination looks promising and it doesn't really offer additional toxicity. So it's quite possible that we may be using this combination in the future. So instead of giving very toxic chemotherapy slowly. Some of the chemotherapy agents are being replaced with the immunotherapy agents that they still will deliver promising results, but there is no significant toxicity or this toxicity can be reduced. And then the last abstract that I want to discuss uh, is an uh, abstract that used in head and neck cancer patients the combination of Herbitax, which is a monoclonal antibody that we use in head and neck cancer, and checkpoint inhibitors. And the scientific background behind this is the metaphoric explanation that they gave about the boxer that cannot reach the opponent because the arms are too strong. So the, the rationale is that maybe Herbitax does change the microenvironment around the cancer, meaning make the cancer more accessible to those punches from immunotherapy. And it was a very small study, but the results are very promising. And again, it's an Herbitax and Pembrolizumab that was given together for patients that they have the recurrent or metastatic cancer. And I, I can speculate that probably this combination will be used in other studies, and I would again encourage you to strongly to, to participate in those studies. So I just want to summarize. So there's lots of excitement, I think, in head and neck and other cancer. Maybe you heard many presentations about the different type of cancers, but I would say I learned so much too, and I'm going to explain why. As a doctor, I try to use the very promising strategies that were presented by other speakers, and I kind of asking myself if I can use those strategies in head and neck cancer. And for you patients, if you heard something interesting that was in breast cancer or ovarian cancer or any other cancers, I'm sure that the similar clinical trial, the similar strategy is being used in head and neck. So be open-minded and again, please participate in clinical trials because you can benefit from this. And I want to thank all the speakers and Dr. Messner for setting up this meeting.
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Masukowitz. That was outstanding and really just wonderful. And I have to say that what you said is a bit of a wrap-up to the call because, indeed, um, as people listen to each of the different types of cancers um, and about the clinical trials being done and the new advances, that they can actually bring that up with their own physician, no matter what their cancer is, because just to see if there's some trial going on that would be of benefit to them. And um, so thank you so much. Excellent. Um, and um, thank you so much. And our next speaker is a Dr. Priscilla Merriam. And Dr. Merriam is Clinical Director, Sarcoma Center, Physician Medical Oncology, Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Instructor in Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Merriam is going to be presenting updates on the treatment of sarcoma presented at ASCO. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Merriam. Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's a privilege to join you and the other speakers to review highlights of the 2021 ASCO annual meeting. This year, we were able to hear the latest results from some research that we've been following for some time, as well as results from new studies. We saw during ASCO 2021 the ongoing efforts of the sarcoma community to investigate the role that immunotherapy may play in the care of people with sarcoma. There were two studies presented that use an approach of engineering or genetically modifying a patient's T cells, a type of immune cells, to train them to better recognize and attack cancer. SPEARHEAD-1, a phase two trial of a FAMA cell, evaluated this approach in 45 patients with advanced or metastatic synovial sarcoma or myxoid round cell liposarcoma. Eligible patients had synovial sarcoma or myxoid round cell liposarcoma cancer cells that showed high levels of a particular marker called MAGE-A4 on their cancer cells. This marker is seen more commonly in synovial sarcoma and myxoid round cell liposarcoma cells. To be eligible, patients also needed to have a specific signature to their white blood cells or HLA type which is a characteristic that you inherit from your parents. These elements were required because of how this type of immunotherapy technology works. Among the patients for whom information could be analyzed, there were 32 patients with synovial sarcoma and only five with myxoid round cell liposarcoma. Results were very encouraging, with the majority of patients showing some decrease in their tumor and an impressive number of patients with synovial sarcoma showing significant response. There were only four patients with myxoid round cell liposarcoma whose results were presented, and most had response to AFAMA cell therapy. This is a very exciting novel approach for these types of sarcomas, but there are some limitations to how many patients may be able to benefit from this approach given the limitations I described. There were over 300 patients who entered screening, but only about one-third of patients had the necessary white blood cell signature and required high level of expression of MAJ4 to move forward with the study. Updates from another engineered T-cell trial were also presented. Letty cell is an engineered T-cell that targets a marker on synovial sarcoma 
and myxoid round cell liposarcoma tumor cells called NYESO1. The main focus of this particular trial presented was to evaluate different doses of the chemotherapy used as a part of this immunotherapy approach in patients with advanced or metastatic myxoid round cell liposarcoma. As with the SPEARHEAD-1 trial, patients were required to have a specific signature of their white blood cells called HLA-AO2 and to have myxoid round cell liposarcoma tumor cells that showed high levels of expression of NYESO1. Results from 10 patients were reported. Almost all patients had response in their tumor to the study treatment, and an encouraging number had a significant response. Ledi-Cell has previously been evaluated in patients with synovial sarcoma and is being further evaluated for this type of sarcoma and myxoid round cell liposarcoma in a master protocol called IGNITE-ESO at multiple centers in order to evaluate side effects and optimal dosing. This is an exciting avenue of research, though we must be mind mindful that because of the requirements for these genetic genetically modified T-cell treatments, this approach will not be available for patients without the necessary white blood cell signature. The sarcoma community is aware of this limitation and continues to work on additional immunotherapy strategies. Other encouraging results were seen in studies of immunotherapy in some rare sarcoma subtypes. Results were presented for the phase two study of atezolizumab a checkpoint inhibitor type of immunotherapy in patients with advanced alveolar soft part sarcoma. Very encouraging results were seen for most patients, with some patients experiencing significant tumor decrease with atezolizumab. The potential benefit of immunotherapy with checkpoint inhibitors for alveolar soft part sarcoma was further demonstrated in a study of the checkpoint inhibitor pembrolizumab in a study of selected subtypes of rare sarcomas. In this phase two study, the French AXA pembrolizumab study, there were encouraging responses seen in patients with alveolar soft part sarcoma who received pembrolizumab, similar to what was seen with atezolizumab. There were early encouraging signs of response as well in chordoma and other rare sarcoma subtypes, including desmoplastic small round cell tumor. Studies of drugs designed to target the molecular drivers of sarcomas showed some promising results this year. A phase two study of a combination of two drugs, the PARP inhibitor Olaparib and the oral chemotherapy Temozolomide in women with advanced uterine leiomyosarcoma was presented. PARP inhibitors are drugs that are designed to prevent cancer cells from repairing damage to the cancer cell's DNA. The combination of temozolomide and olaparib was used based on the idea that olaparib might prevent uterine leiomyosarcoma cells from trying to fix themselves following damage from the chemotherapy drug temozolomide. There were 22 patients for whom study results were available for analysis. Responses to this combination were very encouraging and although there were two drugs used, the treatment was overall tolerable. Further study of this combination is planned. A phase three study called A Promise 
was presented studying a tyrosine kinase inhibitor referred to as AL3818, also called by the names anlotinib or catequitinib in patients with metastatic or advanced synovial sarcoma. Tyrosine kinase inhibitors are a type of oral medication that are designed to have activity against a number of different pathways that cancer cells use to grow, including pathways that support growth of blood vessel supply to the cancer. There is currently a tyrosine kinase inhibitor approved for most sarcomas called pizopinib, or Votrian. In this study, patients were randomized to either catequitinib or decarbazine, a chemotherapy used for sarcomas, typically in later lines. The results of this study suggested that there was a small advantage to using catequitinib as compared to decarbazine, even in patients who had previously taken pizopinib. Numbers of patients were small and the difference was not large, so the role of catequitinib will still need to be further defined. Another new tyrosine kinase inhibitor, citrovetinib, was studied in patients with well-differentiated or de-differentiated liposarcoma in a phase two trial. In prior studies of tyrosine kinase inhibitors, there has not been as much effect as we would want to see for patients with liposarcomas, and pizopinib is not approved for liposarcomas. This study of citrovatinib was conducted because of some results in the lab that suggested that this might be a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that could have a benefit in the treatment of liposarcomas. This was a small study, but there were early promising results seen in patients with well-differentiated and de-differentiated liposarcoma. Finally, we heard results of the largest trial yet of patients with a rare form of sarcoma called epithelioid hemangioendothelioma. This was a phase two study of 41 patients with advanced epithelioid hemangioendothelioma treated with the oral medication trametinib. Trametinib was designed to block one of the growth pathways thought to be important in epithelioid hemangioendothelioma cells. There were encouraging results seen in the study with most patients having some decrease in their tumor. But very importantly, there were significant decreases in the cancer-related pain that patients reported. This is a very important element to follow in our studies, along with other measures of how people feel on a day-to-day -day basis. And this study showed that assessing and following pain levels in an objective and rigorous fashion was feasible and provided an important result. I would like to thank everyone listening today for your interest in improving the lives of people living with sarcoma. Sarcoma experts develop better treatments only because of the generous partnership of patients with sarcoma who decide, decide to participate in clinical trials. Thank you for the part you play and make sure you talk with your treatment team to find out about how to participate in clinical research trials, if that is something that is right for you. It has been an honor to share this update with you. Thank you to everyone, and thank you to Dr. Messner.
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Miriam. That was an outstanding presentation, just wonderful. And also the theme of clinical trials, I think for every single speaker today has been really uh, highlighted. Um, before I conclude the call today, um, I again want to ask you just a few questions as we conclude the program um, so that um, we get a sense of um, how you've learned in the program today. So I'm going to start with our first question. And our first question is, <clears throat> As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of equity in the delivery of oncology care to every patient, every day, everywhere. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the latest ASCO updates on the treatment of breast and ovarian cancers. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the latest ASCO updates on the treatment of prostate cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and low below and, and one the lowest and I'm sorry, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the latest ASCO updates on the treatment of brain cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the latest ASCO updates on, the, on, the, on oral and head and neck cancer. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this, and this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the latest ASCO updates on sarcoma. Again, one is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. So I want to thank you all for participating in these questions. It really helps us to better understand your, you know, what your um, that you've learned in today's program, so that's very helpful to us as we plan future programs. I also want to just uh, highlight what so many of our speakers have said today. Um, and really, um, there are some themes that have been really um, pressed in every single presentation. Um, uh, and those have to do with equity, that everyone get equitable care. Um, in terms of the participation in clinical trials, which really ASCO meeting is really about people's willingness and really a great a thank you to all of those who participate in clinical trials, which really ex expands treatment options for all patients. Um, the increasing role of immunotherapy, and I think you heard that on every single presenter today, and also understanding uh, the biomarker and genomic profiling of cancers, very important in determining the best treatment for cancers. And what we heard in our last speaker was just really sometimes doing research on pain management and for patients, you know, what treatments really help to decrease the pain that patients may be experiencing. Now, 
today's program I hope was very helpful to you. We will have a part two of this program, um, and that's coming in August, and you'll be hearing about that. And for those of you who wish to take advantage of the services of Cancer Care, um, please be aware that um, Cancer Care does offer a range of free support services to people in the United States, um, and those services include of, of financial assistance, practical and financial assistance, and includes also case management, includes um, issues of just having a, having an ability to call our hope line, um, 1-800-813-4673 to speak with one of our oncology social workers about a concern that you may have, joining one of our online support groups, participating in these workshops, or accessing one of our publications, and so much more. So at the end of today's program, you will all be getting, of course, um, a survey monkey evaluation. You'll be able to write more things than that if you wish, um, more your comments. And also in the survey monkey evaluation, we will be providing also links to any resource that was mentioned on the pro program today, um, as well as links to uh, resources that might be quite useful to all of you. Most importantly, as we conclude today, I hope that you all feel inspired by what you learned today. A lot of research going on to enhance and improve all cancer treatments. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.